yeah, your critique of certain understanding of modernity as a process of secularization. And I'm, pre you know, I'm specifically thinking because I'm have written just a book on the concept of alienation and I think alienation is a trademark or a result out of modernity starting with Descartes, Descartes and as, you know, a, as a kind of radical doubt and for me alienation is a concept that allows me to understand the periodization of modernity but you see it very differently or how you you try to look at the bridges or contradictions that exist between this form of periodization in regards to modernity as a form of secularization, right? Yeah, so just to, and I apologize if I'm a little bit hoarse, I was just literally like an hour ago uh, giving a lecture uh, for students, so at the, actually at the Freie Universität, so I was, anyway, um, switching gears slightly. But um, to take a step back, um, in my uh, second book, The Myth of Disenchantment, which is the one that I really grapple with the notion of modernity, um, I was struck by the way that modernity is usually used to signify a kind of rupture or break. Um, but what break is actually being signified by modernity is given radically different valences by different kinds of theorists. So uh, for some, uh, modernity is a break because, you know, the rise of the printing press, or modernity is a break because uh, of the uh, Protestant Reformation, or modernity is a break because of industrialization, or perhaps in, in better models, uh, we might think of the current system of global exchange, uh, the current rise of the global world system as t uh, discussed by uh, Wallerstein and others. Um, but one of the common narratives about modernity is in terms of disenchantment, and that's sometimes identified with secularization, although sometimes those two are held up as analytically distinct. And uh, for me, I think it's that narrative that I'm really trying to problematize. More specifically, that book started off as a response to Horkheimer and Adorno's uh, famous uh, Dialectic der Aufklärung, um, Dialectic of Enlightenment, where they said literally, Enlightenment's program was the disenchantment of the world, die Entsauberung der Welt. And then they also specified the disenchantment of the world means the extirpation of animism. So it was the end of belief in spirits, perhaps, and then also for them, uh, the end of myth, other myth returns, etc., in the dialectical formulation that they're interested in. Well, I began to worry about that, and I worried about this particular narrative about modernity because um, I had done not only a lot of, well, in the first case, because I'd done a lot of field work in different parts of the globe where uh, this notion of disenchantment seemed to be theorists weren't even that confident they could apply the theory there. So uh, the theorists of disenchantment had always begun to qualify it already, and they said, well, okay, maybe the industrialized countries of Western Europe were disenchanted, but not Sub-Saharan Africa, not uh, South and Central America, not uh, East Asia, not South Asia. Well, that's a pretty small part of the world that was supposed to have disenchantment happening in it already. Uh, and then... Um, I had, was doing fieldwork in Japan, and then I was thinking a lot, uh, and then um, an earthquake transposed me, uh, uh, well, and a tsunami, etc., transposed me to Germany, and I was thinking a little bit about things there and rereading the history of German philosophical thought to work on my German, and, and it seemed to me that narrative uh, was problematic in Germany as well, and let me give you, a, but not just in Germany, in America, in Britain, etc. So let me be a little bit more specific. Um, sometimes modernity is defined as the departure of belief in the supernatural. But uh, if you look at 
survey data, uh, contemporary survey data in the United States, for example, uh, what you find is that most Americans, uh, something like 75% of Americans, believe in some kind of supernatural belief. Uh, belief in demons, uh, angels, magic, uh, psychical powers, which may or may not be defined as supernatural, uh, are quite widespread. Uh, uh, healing at a distance, etc. Um, all of these things are actually quite ubiquitous. And if you look at the countries in Western Europe, uh, you see similar kinds of patterns, even though by certain measures, secularization looks very different. So in countries like the Czech Republic, where church attendance is way down, where you get a higher percentage of people who say that they don't believe in God, you actually get more people who believe in ghosts. And so what it seemed to me was that the grand narrative that suggested that you would have a progressive dropping off of the supernatural seemed to be at least wrong about our current moment. And that made me suspect uh, its accuracy in earlier periods. One way to describe or account for this data that a, the handful of theorists who noticed it before uh, have often described a re-enchantment in post-modernity. But actually, if you look at whatever they thought of as the high mark of modernity, in this respect, you could go back into those sources and you could see that modernity had uh, experienced, you know, theosophical revivals, uh, spiritualism and table turning, uh, the occult boom uh, that that defined 1930s Germany and Britain in the earlier period, slightly earlier period, and France. So uh, it didn't look like there was a period at, at which the Western world ever was completely disenchanted, and it definitely didn't look like a return in post-modernity. Um, so I had to disaggregate this from secularization, to be clear. Uh, the secularization patterns look very different in the United States with 90% belief in God versus uh, uh, places like the Czech Republic where it's much lower. But uh, in terms of belief in so-called paranormal or supernatural, um, the beliefs are much more widespread than uh, had been anticipated. So at the very least, I wanted to say, suspect that that account of modernity was wrong. And I wanted to then ask, well, where did we get that account of modernity? Where did we get the account of modernity as despiritualization? And that led me into a book which was in certain respects a genealogy uh, of the statements in uh, Horkheimer and Dorno's uh, Dialectic of Enlightenment, uh, where I traced it back through various uh, um, thinkers in, in Britain, France, and Germany. Uh, and I discovered that it was often being propounded by thinkers um, who were themselves interested in or entangled with or enmeshed in various kinds of occult or spiritualist milieus. So for example, when Max Weber formulates that phrase, the Entzapelung der he had just come back from vacationing at a neo-pagan commune in Ascona, Switzerland. Uh, he knew people who believed in uh, various forms of magical beliefs, etc., etc. So um, one had to reformulate, or you know, when Freud was uh, art arguing about the um, death of animism, uh, he was himself practicing uh, um, as a medium and wondering about the reality of telepathy. So, you know, you could say that similar things about French and German, uh, French and British figures as well. So um, uh, it's not a, a, an oddity of Germany. Um, so, uh, so then I sort of trace the genealogy of that narrative. And I think that narrative of modernity's rupture um, is a mistake. So that isn't to say that um, there aren't various kinds of alienation built into what we might want to call modernization. I see probably more continuities than discontinuities, but I see and it depends a lot on what you're describing or trying to capture with the expression modernity. Uh, people use it to cover so many things and obviously these processes are intertwined, but if you're talking about the history of global capitalism, for example, um, you can see it has a different time period, staging, uh, etc. than if you're talking about uh, the rise of public literacy, or if you're talking about uh, the scientific uh, um, cosmology of a particular formulation, let's say Newtonian cosmology, that's a different 
uh, time period in periodization. So, um, and then there's a totally separate phenomena around dechurching phenomena. Uh, and so all of those can be disaggregated. And I'm the one that I'm probably most sympathetic to, and I, and I imagine that this is something that, that you are doing in your work only from its title, but uh, to, to accounts of um, uh, to the an emphasis on capitalism and the importance of certain phases of global capitalism, which definitely has uh, attendant phenomena such as alienation, etc. But I tend to think of it in a more Marxist or, you know, what have you, um, post-Marxist kind of a sense. Um, and I don't, and, and then we have to be very careful about what we're talking about and uh, which, you know, definition of capitalism we're using, uh, etc. Um, but it also, the surprise is that capitalism and, dis and enchantment are not um, mutually diametrically opposed phenomena. And so instead of a departure of the supernatural, we might say we see a commodification of the supernatural. So uh, what we, you know, and, and that's quite apparent in, you know, we were talking about new age bookstores or like you can go to Walmart uh, right now and uh, buy uh, Sage and, and, or you can go on uh, eBay and have people uh, pay for people to cast spells on you. Uh, it's not, you know, or, or uh, there are also all the um, figures who are themselves proponents of um, um, ritual practices that are intended to produce money, so prosperity gospels or new age thinkers who practice new thought in order to attract currency to them, or again, depends on your definition of capitalism, but uh, I would say at the very least what you see is a commodification, uh, not a departure. Um, there are ways we could qualify or complexify it, but I think that's a good part of the, of the grand trajectory that I sort of work through in the myth of disenchantment and it pushes against the notion of modernity as a single unitary rupture but rather sees different processes that are staggered and that happen at different periods so i'm not denying industrialization i'm not denying illiteracy i'm not denying that the notions of what counts as quote-unquote supernatural uh, ha have changed they definitely have uh, certain categories have globalized like the category of ghost or spirit which if anything seems to have gained strength uh, at the end of the 19th century and come to absorb many uh, local or indigenous categories that then get assimilated to this generic term of espiritus or spirit or ghost, um, you know, things like that. So, I mean, I'm not saying no changes, but I'm talking about uh, a very different kind of changes than the uh, account of modernity that often defines it in terms of a rupture. Yeah. And uh, when when you present this this uh, potential critique to to Adorno and Horkheimer, uh, obviously here we have this notion of technology and the instrumentalization of technology and science aiming at environmental control, no, and then domination of the masses, etc. But this. Um, I don't know if you follow this uh, famous Marcel Mauss statement no? about magic and technology aiming both at environmental control or if you are more leaning towards what Federico Campagna and all these scholars from today, all these new conceptions about magic. Because this dichotomy uh, is presented uh, in the dialectic of the Enlightenment in a way that, yeah, basically what you said is, is, is obviously is true. I mean, this disenchantment is, is not taking place in, in Latam or in different areas of the world, many, many places. Um, reification and f different forms of fetishism are omnipresent in Western societies. But I wonder if you see this parallel. Sure, yeah. 
Well, so first, my two p points of argument uh, in the first case with Adorno and Horkheimer is that they imagine that notions of the domination of nature and its animatedness are incompatible, whereas those have often co-occurred. So Francis Bacon, for example, who they describe as the author, uh, uh, you know, they begin their narrative um, of, of enlightenment with Francis Bacon. And Francis Bacon, as I uh, argue, actually believed in a fully animated cosmos. I mean, when he described torturing, putting nature to the rack, it was an animate nature that he was in the process of, of attempting to manipulate. The same way that in you know, contemporary Japan, um, you have, you know, plenty of scientific research that often frames itself uh, in terms of an animate environment. So, I mean, you and, you know, philosophers, notions of panpsychism uh, were dominant, actually, at various points in various philosophical circles in the 19th century. Notions of vitalism uh, were dominated in medicine and medical research in the 18th century and earlier periods. And the very periods when modern disciplines like medicine were coming to control and manipulate the human physical body, you know, the great stuff that uh, Foucault talks about in The Birth of the Clinic, that's also the period of medical vitalism. So uh, that assumption that those two things are intention uh, uh, is, I think, a little bit um, is, is is not true. And then, if you, depending on how you define your category of magic, and there's a little bit of a sleight of hand insofar as scholars have defined that term differently in different places, uh, a lot of what gets classified as magic in both indigenous and in pre-modern societies is understood by the people practicing practicing it as forms of technique. So they're you know tools or techniques or strategies, often for, with purposes of control or manipulation. So in that respect, you know, depending on how you define uh, uh, science and magic, Marcel Mauss is, as I think, accurate. I mean, insofar as um, you can have, um, uh, you know, even in the Enlightenment, in the French Enlightenment, this notion of natural magic, uh, which was central to to the formation of, uh, you know, important to the encyclopedias like uh, Diderot and D'Alembert, that is a kind of a technique, set of techniques for manipulating the world and environment, calling itself magic. Uh, and often, uh, or, or sometimes allied with notions of uh, spirits or signs or signatures in the world, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I, and I also think that there's also a, a mistake that presumes um, not only a, a, a binary opposition between uh, magic and science, but also an anachronism about um, uh, in, indigenous peoples, their rationality, uh, what, what kind of things that they're thinking and doing. Um, and then also, you know, even within um, the modern historical industrialized nations, how well we understand the technologies that we knew, use and deploy. So, you know, so there, there are a lot of different things that, 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 we, that, that make that um, somewhat difficult. But I definitely don't see technology as inevitably leading to an extirpation of anim animism, even if uh, in certain domains and in certain sectors, um, you know, the people who are trying to work on um, you know, building uh, cell phones or whatever are probably not necessarily worrying about you know, the spirits that, that there might be in the cell phone or, or you know, the consciousness of, of silicon. But uh, by the time you're in the hands of users, those definitely are not seen as incompatible. So, um, and even in physics, which is often considered the most austere uh, discipline and, and the most disenchanting, quote unquote, um, you know, especially with the rise of quantum physics, you start to get people who are trying to populate that or use that to um, read the cosmos in new and, and reanimated ways. And there's a bunch of new age stuff like that, but also in the early uh, um, quantum physicists themselves, folks like Wolfgang Pauli uh, and others who are, you know, uh, even, you know, who are important in formulating things like the very Copenhagen interpretation itself, they were reading it in ways that we might want to register as enchanted. So, um, you know, uh, again, you know, I, um, 
it's com complex and entangled, but I at least wouldn't hold a clear uh, binary opposition between magic and technology in that respect. And often instrumentality and various forms of instrumental reason can be found. Um, you have rationalization toward magic or toward magical ends as well as rationalization toward technological ends. And sometimes those are both instru equally instrumental. Yeah, or, you know, depends, but... Um, you know, we got this word, like Harry Potter idea where magic, you know, was like people waving wands and anything goes. But if you read people in the late medieval period who called themselves or were accused by others of being magicians or witches, they're doing what they're doing to change aspects of the world, usually. Uh, and they think that they're developing those technologies or techniques uh, to, with greater or lesser de degrees of uh, capacity or capability. So, um, yeah. I, I've seen uh, quite a big transition, for example, in terms of interest in the art world and I can think that after the crisis of 2008 previously many art practices were more politically and maybe even theoretically concerned and then in the last decade we have seen a growing interest in different forms of animism and uh, yeah, a lot of indigenous uh, kind of practices and cosmovisions. And I wonder whether you have also perceived this kind of turn uh, from maybe some of the limitations that perhaps certain theoretical approaches were having or political approaches, certainly in the art, and then trying to look for other alternative ways of understanding the world in the last decade. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think that they, there tend to be um, um, rising and falling patterns. Um, you know, we might say dialectical reversals, or we might say oscillations. Although I don't love the word oscillation, uh, but um, and I think you know, I think looking at the 1970s, for example, 60s and 70s, there was a lot of um, of um, Return to indigenous, uh, so-called, although sometimes more with more or less fidelity, or uh, you know, Eastern spiritual traditions that were supposed to be having an impact on people's art, or you know, and, and if you look at decades earlier, you get uh, the influences of theosophy on the early abstract abstract art or whatever. And then I think that's true that there were there have been periods where art has been more or less political, and there have been periods of time in which artists were more or less allied with recognizable political trajectories, like. You know the Mar Marxist art, which has you know come and gone, um, or uh, um, it, or for example, um, connections between you know um, art and more you know counterculture movements of one sort or another. I think partially too, you know, even you have like crass political art, like in the 2008 election, you had the, this famous Shepard Fairey image of Obama that was, you know, with hope or whatever that was, I think, you know, quite, I, I like Shepard Fairey as an artist and it was some quite successful um, art as propaganda. But I think you're, I, I'm not sure whether I'm attending closely enough to the art world to know what's happening in the last decade or so. I'm very much more a, uh, you know, a historian of um, culture and, uh, and ideas more, but um, but I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, and I, I talked to a lot of folks online who have seen the last uh, in the United States and and in um, and in Great Britain who have seen the last um, you know dis a disaffection with contemporary politics for a lot of good reasons, and then have been looking to other places for for sources of their projects, their meaning, uh, whether they're academics or musicians, or um, I know less artists, but but some artists as well. Um, so, I mean, you know, the politics in the U.S. is pretty screwed up right now, and I can see why a lot of people are, and it looks pretty dire, so I can see why a lot of people are um, 
you know, looking in other other directions. And sometimes the, the enchanted stuff is um, seen as aligned with politics, and sometimes it's seen as not. So you know. Yeah, it's interesting because there is a <clears throat> still a link with the previous discussion because what I find uh, different from different uh, approaches towards this idea about where where modernity uh, starts and where, um, for example, there is enough momentum for producing uh, a critique uh, such as the one by Adorno and Horkheimer. And I think this particular moment in time, like before the Second World War and during the Second World War, in the West, uh, there is an obvious Promethean project that with all the emerging technologies, warfare, uh, the development of uh, nuclear weapons, etc. And uh, while on the contrary, when, for example, you mentioned this idea of, of bacon torturing nature, uh, there is this more sort of orphic approach towards the world that actually could be uh, translated to the current moment in which, for example, with all these conversations about conspiracy theories, etc., there is this need of unveiling nature rather than embracing a project that uh, in evident terms wants to expand and, yeah, basically move forward, no? So... Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with you. And the only qualification I would add is that then, you know, there, there tend to be more competing threads going at any one given time than the historiography tends to uh, remember or preserve. And so, for example, you know, even in the building of the atom bomb, you know, Oppenheimer, who famously said, I become death destroyer of the worlds, quoting uh, the Bhagavad Gita, because he was interested in uh, yeah. um, uh, Hindu thought and, and transcendental meditation and other things. So, you know, there... But 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 I think you're right that, that there there are different approaches that that are more predominant in certain periods than in others, and um, I, I think that certain um, certain approaches have, have run out of steam more recently, and others are starting to build gain momentum as well. Um, and I think I, I, not surprisingly, um, much of the 20th. Um, and 21st centuries has been about relationships to technology and notions of technology and the technological, um, how that relates to notions of the human, um, what are what are its limitations, how does that relate to the quote-unquote natural world, um, how does that relate to, you know, and whether there's also these complex paradoxes, for example, about rewilding, which is often a human attempt to reassert a non-human nature, which has, you know, its own, which which is both, I, I'm, you know, sort of pro, but, I, but, I, but I'm aware my environmental studies colleagues remind me of the in, inherent contradictions of the ways those projects kind of can kind of function, for example. But, you know, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I can, uh, but I, I can see the, the grand trajectories you're talking about, definitely. Yeah. And have you been looking at uh, kind of uh, phenomenons like quanon and magic, like thinking in regards to technology and quote unquote spiritual beliefs. Yeah, I mean, I have. Um, I got very paranoid about um, the 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 far right and their uh, um, deployment of this rhetoric uh, back. Just a few years ago, actually, just a couple years ago, at the beginning of the pandemic, and um, spent a bunch of time looking at how they were 
using that language, basically. And there's a lot of notions of meme magic, the notion of creation of thought forms, which was supposed to, you know, there was a you know, whole sort of propaganda, magical theory technology built into that uh, discourse. There's some great work by a contemporary scholar named Eagle Asprim, who's done some some work on, on meme magic and how that functioned. Um, and I was also interested in uh, um, focusing on slightly different communities within the United States, but about how um, folks on left and right were using the internet to mobilize and to do collective rituals. So there was, for example, there was a period of time when uh, a group of feminist witches were hexing Trump, while a group of uh, far right uh, counter magicians were trying to hex them, and you know, but and, and that kind of thing, you know, has is very much uh, at the edge of visibility in political discourse in the United States, and it became most visible uh, with the January 6th insurrection, and you know, uh, where some of those people that I've been looking at actually um, uh, entered, you know, got off got off of online and into the physical world in a different way. Um, but then also phenomena like QAnon. I haven't studied QAnon as much directly as some of these other forms, but. Uh, but I think it's part of a similar pattern. And I, and I want to suggest that this is also more of the evidence that to talk too quickly of disenchantment or uh, is, uh, it misses a huge sector of, of um, America or humanity. And it's also disaggregatable from um, organized religion. So this is something that takes a different form than, for example, the evangelical revival that drove the George Bush presidency and, you know, or, or, or what have you, um, the second Bush presidency. This is um, some of these people, you know, there's a right that is not the Christian right. And in the academic study of religion, we've spent a lot of time focusing on Christian evangelicals, but there's a whole section of the populace who identify as quote-unquote spiritual but not religious, who are themselves, um, you know, in that respect, a product of secularization tendencies. But on the other hand, those are the people often deploying meme magic, deploying, um, who are really interested in conspiracy theories, or, on, or if they're on the, on the right, or if on the, they're on the left, uh, you know, witchcraft, uh, covens, um, you know, and so, or, or, or um, you know, nature, get back to nature phenomena. So you can see a lot of these patterns kind of uh, cross-cutting each other. And I think many scholars of contemporary religion uh, have overlooked these. There's some great folks working on this work, but it's tended to be the uh, anthropologists looking at the non-Western world who have looked at similar patterns. And so part of what I was doing in that first, in that second book was turning an anthropological gaze on uh, Western Europe and showing that many of the kinds of things that got flagged as magic uh, when we're writing about people were writing about Japan or China or Korea or you know uh, Guatemala or what have you, we actually could see them in the coffee shops uh, of Amer contemporary North America, or you could see them in bookstores, or you could see them online. Uh, and so that's part of what I was doing in the co short contemporary section of that before I did the long genealogical work. Um, so yeah, so that was definitely, and there's a lot more work to be done. That was just a first pass on it. Um, yeah. And do you want to uh, tell us about metamodernity as, as a notion, as the notion that you use uh, in the book and as a sort of introduction for, for the audience? Because I think it's very relevant, yeah, for this, precisely for this moment. Yeah, so I, yeah, so I prefer meta with an ism rather than a T, although that doesn't really matter that much, but um, in that... Let me take a step back. So the follow-up book to The Myth of Disenchantment was a book called uh, Metamodernism, The Future of Theory. And mm -hmm. that just came out uh, this last year for those of you, uh, your listeners who, who might be curious about it, um, both from the same press. And um, one of the things that um, I was interested in, and this was part of my graduate school training, was that our graduate school was dominated by something that was called postmodernism. 
-hmm. as a particular academic model. And it was a hotly contested academic model. There were people who were postmodernists and people who were anti-postmodernists. But what I was primarily interested in is not so much as a periodization. In other words, not postmodernity as a rupture that came, comes after modernity, but rather postmodernism as a scholarly paradigm. And it's a scholarly paradigm that I wanted to argue came to dominance in part through this bricolage effect where different snippets of different French and German theorists who themselves did not define themselves generally as postmodernists were stitched together to produce one way of kind of doing scholarship and one set of arguments in the academy. And uh, it's been my sense, and this is sort of the timeliness of it, that that has run aground. The, as Bruno Latour famously put it in an essay, critique has run out of steam. And I don't know if critique is the right capture, but uh, because I'm, uh, but 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 I think the right category to talk about it, but at least a certain kind of critique, a kind of postmodern critique, um, had seemingly run aground, and run aground because, uh, in part, um, it was producing academic models that were, uh, or producing, um, you know, academic models that were not really clarifying the things that they were supposed to be studying, uh, or it was producing politics that were only in a key of scorn, and it's impossible to motivate people if all you're telling them is that everything is just crap and that there's nothing they can do about it. Uh, but it also had some inherent contradictions. But I wanted to say that it also rested on some real philosophical problems. The reason that postmodernism uh, took hold in the American Academy wasn't merely because, I don't know, people were being duped or something. I mean, it wasn't that wasn't what was going on. It wasn't, um, and a lot of the postmodernist so-called thinkers were, you know, brilliant people with brilliant insights, uh, uh, and there were real philosophical issues at stake. So uh, in this book, I wanted to work through those. And, you know, here, uh, deploying instead of a Foucauldian genealogical model, but a, a dialectical model from uh, Hegelian tradition, I wanted to look at one of the things that struck me looking at this material is how much uh, of the postmodernist material was itself framed as a negation. Postmodernism, deconstruction, anti-essentialism, anti-foundationalism, all of these prefixes are different ways of negating the term that came before. But Hegel had famously talked about um, the movement of thought in three phases, a limited abstraction or the positive moment, a negationary moment, and then a third move, which is the negation of the negation, which is the move uh, uh, on which the whole dialectic turns. So I decided to try and figure out what would happen if I ran a broadly Hegelian operation on the main on a set of interesting philosophical tenets abstracted from postmodern philosophy. Uh, and it's not like a meat grinder. You can't like throw things in the dialectic and always get the same result. Uh, I'm not like trying to promote a grand turn to Hegel or Hegelianism, but I thought it was a useful guide for thinking about a certain set of impasses within philosophy, basically, or the American or Anglo-American or even global academy. Um, and out the other side, uh, I came to something that I ended up calling metamodernism. I didn't coin the term. Uh, and in the first draft of the book, um, and even when it went through the first round of peer review, I didn't use the term metamodernism. I had no isms in the book, but everybody kept wanting to call it by way of an ism. So my peer reviewer said that it was an example of post-postmodernism, and that made me want to throw up. That was like the worst thing anyone could call it. That that isn't what I was trying to do at all. And um, you know, and I didn't want to, I don't know, just make up some coin it, some random word, and then stick an ism on the end of it. I don't know, uh, dialogical opportunism, or something, I don't know, who knows, something crappy like that. I didn't want to do that. Uh, and I had read a um, Nigerian art historian named Moyo Okadiji, who used the word uh, metamodernism to talk about artists who were trying to transcend both modernist art and postmodernist art and we're drawing from and transcending both of those at the same time and that's what i wanted to do my with, philosophically so i decided to call that metamodernism uh 
in some respects, that term um, is misleading because it's so central to the title and it's not so central to the project uh, in that uh, other people have used the term metamodernism. Some of those are ways in which uh, my work complements, but in other ways it doesn't. Um, so I'm not so much trying to describe a pre-existing shift uh, in art or culture or philosophy as produce one. And so in that book, it's basically a kind of manifesto for a way to consolidate the gains uh, of postmodernism uh, and, and work past them. Maybe that might be a way to think about it. Or the other way to think about it is it's a it's a solution to the problems of critique that doesn't abandon critique. Uh, and in that respect, it's a manifesto for a new systematic philosophy uh, formulated in the postmortem of postmodernism. Um, and so, you know, it, it uses uh, postmodernism uh, as a starting point, but not at its terminus, and then tries to work through and past it. So it starts from the negative gesture. It grants a lot of the negativities. This is not one of those like cheery, happy projects that's like tries to pacify people by telling them that it was all great all along. But rather, it, uh, it begins by granting um, many of the things, uh, postmodernist critiques about the limitations of um, uh, for example, certain kinds of conceptual categories or the, or the, the presence of the co-entanglement of fact and value or, um, you know, problems around the notion of the real. And then it goes off of them to, to make a new argument. But in its final formation, I want to say the work should stand on its own. Postmodernism is its springboard. Uh, it's what inspired me to do it. And I mention it because it was my own academic formation and I'm working through and past myself in that way. But the end result um, is a set of basically philosophical arguments that even if you think I've mischaracterized postmodernism, it doesn't matter. Uh, I'm not very interested in, um, although you know, I name drop when I need to to give you triangulation. I'm not interested in arguments from authority. I'm not going to say, you know, whether Derrida would or would not endorse anything that I'm saying or what have you. What I'm interested in is producing um, a series of ideas or doing kind of first order philosophy or theory, um, uh, and so that should stand on its own. And so that's kind of what I do in that book. But I read a ton of stuff because uh, I have a particular notion of the intellectual endeavor that uh, presumes that we're all entangled uh, in some particular way and that there's no um, Archimedean point outside of the, of the, the culture in order to, that you flip it, but rather we're embedded and enmeshed and situated and that we then uh, have to work in certain kinds of collective ways to transform knowledge. But for that reason, I, I start talking about metamodernism and there's some other folks who have used it in terms of periodizations where they talk about modernity, postmodernity, metamodernity. I, I, the problem I have with periodizations is that often they make actors out of things that are that they're trying to explain. Uh, this isn't necessarily the case, but it, it can often be the case. Uh, you know, you say modernity does something when actually what you're doing is describing a period in which something happened. And then also, uh, there's often uh, not as much sophisticated when, when people aren't specifying what they mean by these terms there could be a whole bunch of different changes that the, the the term elides and then another critique is that many of these patterns don't happen globally uh at the same moment so for example uh early theorists of modernity often thought that modernity was happening somewhere else so uh in paris they looked to london for modernity in london they looked to new york for modernity in new york they looked to continental europe i mean modernity is almost it was often nowhere and everywhere you know something like that or in accounts of postmodernism or postmodernity, again that only seemed to capture a very small section of elite uh, intellectuals and artists in a narrow band of, of academic disciplines i mean you know uh, leaving philosophy for example, in sub-Saharan Africa to ask, you know, were we ever even modern so that we're now supposed to be postmodern, question mark? Or, you know, does postmodernism even apply to, to South Asia? Other scholars asked. Anyway, I read a lot of that literature. My training is in part in postcolonial theory. And 
So that gives me a suspicion about these global categories and the presumption that we enter periods on mass. That said, there are some global phenomena like the current world system of contemporary capitalism, which did transform the globe and did do so, if not all in one moment, in a, one um, elaborated process that we can work out. Uh, and, you know, I, I believe in attending to those. And it's true now that contemporary systems of exchange uh, of thought and knowledge, as we can see from our three different, uh, quite different geographic locations in our conversation, uh, are speeding up. And so, you know, there are things that are that are um, interlinking, that are happening more with greater degrees of simultaneity than they might have happened at uh, other periods uh, in the past. So, you know, I, I, you know, lots of other things. But um, but anyway, I don't think that they clearly fit into a clear periods. So this was sort of metamodernism as model, basically. Yeah. Um, rather than metamodernity as period. And would the metaverse be a clear example of metamodernism? I hope not, because I think the meta metaverse sucks. I, I'm not a big fan of the, <laughs> of the of the Zuckerberg or whatever he's trying to produce there. Uh, I have actually a little essay uh, uh, on my blog about calling hack the metaverse, because uh, unfortunately my book was already out, and then he flips to using the word meta uh, and, and metaverse. And I wanted to, to own that I'm from a um, you know uh, 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 similar cultural zeitgeist moment. I actually overlapped uh, at Harvard with. Uh, Zuckerberg and I don't, although I, he, I didn't know him and I was, I'm a little bit, just a little bit older than him. Um, and I was in Silicon Valley when he was launching Facebook, although I have different friends. Um, so, uh, you know, so they're probably not accidental reasons why we both thought the word meta was cool, but I'm not into his project at all. And I think actually it, it's, I think it's a fundamental mistake in, in a couple of fun, in important ways. And one of them is that, um, you know, a lot of us growing up in that, in that moment thought that, um, you know, the 90s, there was a certain thing called cyberpunk that a lot of us thought was cool. I still think it's kind of cool. Um, uh, but, uh, the, you know, the, and, and, and the word, the metaverse, Zuckerberg is getting literally from a cyberpunk novel from Snow Crash uh, by uh, Neil Stevenson. But the difference is cyberpunk is a dystopia. The point is not to bring the metaverse into being. And in fact, Snow Crash is very explicit about that. The, one of the characters is describing about, you know, the, the instable, precarious existence of late stage capitalism and says, when life sucks, you can flee into the metaverse. Well, you know, that's that's exactly what we don't want. That, that prevents you from changing the world and making it better. So I think Zuckerberg and I learned opposite lessons, uh, you know, from that cyberpunk literature. I thought it was, you know, a very fun and cool informative as well, but recognize its dystopianness. It's, you know, there's some things that, that we might like about it, but we're not trying to bring to being uh, that kind of um, alienation from the world that I think the metaverse in his project entails and was even there in the original novel that he's referencing. So uh, in that respect, it's more a more anti-metaverse uh, uh, metamodernism. Uh, but we share the prefix meta, and I think that there is an interest in this moment at getting above and beyond and over or reflexive about the things that we're doing. Um, and that's part of why prefixes like meta uh, proliferate. Um, and my work is an example, metamodernism is an example of meta-theorizing in that, and I could make this more or less explicit, I didn't quite do it enough in the framing of the book, but it's there, but it's a little buried. It's a theory that's intended to apply to itself. So it has all the categories that it utilizes. It has a, a, a notion of a um, you know, a, a notion of a relationship to the real, it has a notion of social kinds, it has an ethics, it has a systematic epistemology, but they're all things that are meant to apply to themselves, producing virtuous rather than vicious circles. You can have a theory that's a vicious circle that then uh, refutes itself or it's merely tautological, uh, it merely attempts to prove itself and then it doesn't do anything, but actually uh, the, the metamodernist theory that I'm articulating is a meta-theory, it's a theory of theories, and it can tell you why it's going to be a more or less successful theory for those reasons. So um, that's part of what the meta prefix is doing there yeah 
but even though you mentioned uh, with, with very good reasons that you didn't like this this term metamodernity as a period of time there is something here that i think is um sort of scary because we have this um we are crossing a, a threshold in which we see these these things like met the metaverse crypto Uh, projects like NFTs, the production of digital scarcity whatsoever. And obviously uh, this, these projects and these movements of capital, they are expressing something that uh, under the view of someone that maybe has some elementary Marxist reading goes beyond primitive phases of accumulation and what we see is proper this this very idea of deterioralization as understood in classic terms okay i need to sell you well what whatever whatever you decide to create with an nft or this new space that is the this metaverse thing so mm, To some extent, in literal terms, if, as you mentioned, uh, there is this progressive fragmentation that we have understood as postmodernity, this lack of grand narrative, maybe the extenuation of the uh, scholarship, but there is a sort of meta-modernity in literal terms going on when we see this, well, these this huge things that actually used as a uh, use the context of the pandemic in which we were isolated to gain terrain and space real space because for example the use of zoom or the use of yeah virtual spaces was generalized for many people that maybe they had no previous access to smartphones or stuff like that So yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think that the pandemic um, is another one of those global patterns, right? So, you know, uh, relying on or parasitic on the formation of the global world system that defined the late 19th and early 20th century, um, but at the very least, you know, and, and perhaps relying on the economic logics of late stage capitalism, um, you know, or, or deploying, uh, you know, the, the the question about whether the pandemic is itself a product of deforestation and the collapse of natural habitats, uh, but that you know that's somewhat debated. But in either case. The pandemic is one of the things we as a globe have undergone to some extent together, not exactly the same speed and not exactly in the same ways, but that makes it uh, a, a kind of watermark. And we're not out of it, obviously, yet, um, but I think you're right that it has then um, uh, attendant effects on it. And, and I think that's you know one of the things that your podcast is highlighting, the importance of that as a transformation. And I totally agree. I'm not against... You know, I think we these there are in fact sometimes massive global phenomena. You know, Second World War, for example, or uh, uh, the rise of global capitalism or the pandemic that do uh, encircle the globe in one way or another, and then we can talk about their attendant effects. Um, so I, I, I agree with that for sure. And the and you know the, there are other things. The other direction I thought you were going to go, which um, I, I also agree with, uh, is that changing economic conditions according to a standard Marxist reading should produce cha you know, changes in the in the base produce changes in the superstructure and there are ways in which the economic system of global precarity you know we're not in the form of capitalism 
you know, that Marx critiqued much less the form of capitalism that was the center of critiques in the 60s and 1970s. I mean, the idea of the capital, where, where one of the main critiques was being locked in a job that you would have forever, and the, one of the things, one of the um, alienating effects of capitalism was your transformation into an assembly line manufacturer and a wage slave in a particular way. That doesn't apply as uh, in the same way in our contemporary era of precarity, uh, our contemporary era of um, casual employment, our contemporary era in which uh, there are now the formulation of cryptocurrencies that are producing strange and, uh, uh, and, and not yet predictable effects on the global economy. Uh, so, you know, there are a series of economic changes. And I'm not um, uh, an orthodox Marxist such that I would, I think that necessarily the changes in the base have straightforward or direct changes on the superstructure. But I think uh, I'm enough of a I'm sensitive enough to that that kind of argumentation to want to suggest that there definitely are effects that were that are happening uh, based on changes in in this particular stage of late stage capitalism, which is maybe even later than what Frederick Jameson famously characterized uh, in his book on um, postmodernism. Uh, he he's writing before uh, you know a whole bunch of things that have happened since the since the 90s. I mean, you know, um, we're really not. Um, the global supply, the radical retransformation of the global supply chain, and then its problems. The you know the radical rise of the internet economy, the rise of precarity. You know all those things, um, and arguments around automa automation. Although I've been recently hearing complications around the automation narrative, but anyway, those are those are phenomena that are happening uh, in our very current moment. Um, so I think uh, one of the things about postmodernism that was a that uh, as a philosophical movement connected to a set of economic shifts is that it. Um, you know, might to its own extent reflect, uh, have reflected certain economic conditions that are no longer the case. And then the other thing I would emphasize too is that the postmodern narrative about the death of grand narratives, I want to be critical of it. I think it's an example of a vicious rather than virtuous circle because that was itself a meta narrative and a, a widely propounded one. And so that one sort of began to swallow itself up and it, it appeared alongside attendant other grand meta narratives. They were just different ones. It wasn't the, uh, you know, the if, if the Marxist uh, standard meta narrative about class struggle had faded or uh which is part of what leotard had in mind um uh then at, at the very least you know notions of disenchantment and secularization as grand narratives were still being widespread in the moment that postmodernism was describing the death of meta narratives so um but you know you're right i think that there was been a kind of fragmentation and then uh a, a new um reassemblage in different kinds of ways and what i wanted to do uh in the metamodernism book was kind of build off the good parts of postmodern theory figure out what parts are still relevant or what are still useful um so i mean i'm not you know, I'm a, I would say I'm a, a recovering postmodernist uh, or something, or, you know, more so than I'm an anti-postmodernist. But I want to suggest that a lot of that theory uh, had limits to it. Uh, and it's time to sort of figure out what worked and what didn't. Yeah. And it often didn't do the main thing that it wanted. A lot of people got interested in postmodern theory, and I know that, that that I did, in part because it was given a set of progressive political valence that it ultimately often failed uh, to, to actualize. So, you know, uh, in fact, if you read Derrida carefully, you know, okay, he had his Spectres of Marx book, but a lot of his early theorizing basically could be read as an apologetics for neoliberalism. I mean, uh, although, you know, I'll fight with other Derridians, you know, about that. But, you know, and I don't just mean Derrida. I mean, you know, um, we can... They, People talk about Foucault's neoliberal turn late, uh, uh, etc. I mean, it was clear that the old model of Marxism um, had, had not wasn't animating. You know, after Stalinism, anyway, no longer was working as a motivating political theory in, in Western Europe. And then, you know, you had various forms of Western Marxism. Um, but then, postmodernism, insofar as it was both supposed to be politically progressive and um, 
anti-political. Actually, it mostly just uh, the anti-political one. Instead of um, talking truth to power and, and challenging power, uh, it basically just challenged the power of truth and uh, it, it auto-relativized itself. It made itself less relevant uh, to contemporary political and uh, economic uh, uh, and day-to-day life than, than it really could have been. So uh, for those reasons, I think it's time to consolidate the gains of postmodernism and, and move forward. Um, Yeah, you're, you're you're working on the book about power right now, right? Yes, I have a little book that's coming in the middle, but that's where. Uh, but the big book, the next big book I'm writing is about power. Yeah, yeah, because I think I'm, we need to retheorize power. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's a very good. Um, yeah, it would be great to hear because I. Well, I'm very close to the Ray Brasier, um, who's a philosopher, and now he's actually doing a course on uh, Deleuze and Guattari and Theodipus and uh, Marx. And this comes because there is a, a French philosopher, a, um, a woman who looked specifically at the way, at the distortions that many of the French uh, philosophers, such as Foucault and Deleuze, did to Marxism. I They empty out certain categories, like the class struggle. The, they, they really, you know, and you can see the influence of vitalism. And obviously, to use the concept of power, it reaches a level of abstraction that Marx never had. It was a very kind of concrete, you know, he, he worked through concrete forms of determina conceptual determinations. So we're very interested in hearing um, how do you understand power and if you have a critique about Foucault's uses of the concept of power or others. Yeah, sure, great. Um, so it's definitely very much in progress and, and that is to say my ideas may ship, sorry, my daughter's running around upstairs if you hear the footfalls of little feet, that's, that's what she's doing. Um, but but to talk about power, so here's the interesting thing. There, there um We can say that there have been three main dominant threads in attempts to theorize power. Uh, the first uh, we could call, uh, you can associate with different figures, but the one that I find articula articulates it most systematically is Max Weber, but it's the domination theory of power. So this is power as a kind of control, but it's power that's necessarily asymmetrical, um, and it's power that involves one person in their ability to control somebody else, or one group in their ability to control somebody else. Um, so there's the dominating notions of power, and then there was a second alternative account that uh, Hannah Arendt provided in her work, which is a solidarity notion of power, the notion of power, not that's how, so the Weberian account is a kind of sovereign theory of power. If you were going to kind of identify who holds power in the society is often read in terms of a sovereign figure or a sovereign institution that has power from a top-down perspective. What Hannah Arendt wanted to argue was that power is something that's distributed across the society, but it's distributed in groups, uh, and that it's you know a kind of a collective or solidarity, a product of solidarity. And this is a very positively valenced version of power. She described uh, uh, violence, for example, as something that that's not emerges out of power but appears when power fails so it's just using the word in a little bit of a quite or a very different way but that was one of the things that Hunter and is very interesting at she would take ordinary terms and use them in very creative ways so but anyway her power solidarity notion of power in, in the third sense we have a Foucauldian notion of power and um, the Foucauldian Foucault it's 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 interesting because I um, increases Foucault often said about himself that he didn't have a theory of power he had a series of analyses of power and that he had he was providing not a grand theorizing but a set of um, toolkits 
I once described himself as a person who makes not theories but tools, which I, I, is an interesting technological metaphor in, in Foucault. But um, it turns out that people have lifted from Foucault a particular theory of power as um, often at, in terms of um, subjection. So a power that comes, power that works its way, sometimes the capillary theory of power. Uh, Foucault did describe power as uh, decapitating the sovereign. Uh, so the power, so again, it becomes collective. Uh, but he gave examples, you know, of, of normalization, both of, you know, how, uh, um, you know, a group of people can suddenly decide that the, that somebody is mad and therefore lock them up or whatever. So, you know, you can you can declare. I, I give this example to my students. Uh, if I pull, if I'm about to pull off my shirt, you might think, according to a sovereign theory of power, that I'm the one who's empowering the classroom. But according to a uh, normalization theory of power, there are certain norms that I have to abide. And if I don't, like if I rip off my shirt, you can declare me mad and have the campus police take me out of the classroom or something like that, right? Now, Foucault also was interested in how power produces certain kinds of subjects, how identities were produced by ways of power. Now, he was Foucault was kind of careful insofar as he didn't say that power was necessarily domination. That's not exclusively true. His governmentality lectures, he talks about power as a kind of domination. And that's where I think he might actually be talking about, we might be able to split him into two different theories of power. But uh, in other cases, he talked about not only power being present in every interhuman interaction, but power was both uh, in terms of domination and in terms of resistance for Foucault. So there was a, it was both a potestas and potentia, it was the ability to both dominate, but also to change. But in our secondhand recovery of theories of power, we've tended to take the dominating theory from Weber and the capillary from Foucault, even though they're meant to be, by Foucault's side, diametrically opposed theories, and we've woven them together. So we have ended up with the idea in many sectors of the academy that a power is ubiquitous, that it is uh, in, appears in every human interaction, that it produces subjects, but also that it is bad and that it is dominating. And uh, But we can't say whether it is more or less dominating because we can't identify, we have this dominating theory, but without the sovereign. So we, it, it, it's intensely, we often presume that certain groups or individuals have power, but it's, but it's hotly contested who those individuals are and what those groups are, other than some kind of broad demographic. And we often don't know power to do what. Even more importantly, uh, the, the theories of power, all, the, many academic disciplines are terminating their theories and theories of power. In other words, um, uh, you know, theories of critical race theory have said race is all about power. Theories of critical gender theory have said gender is all about power. Uh, theories of theories of critical economic historians have said that the economy is all about power. You, you can find everything. Like I, I was searching phrases all about power, for example, in Google Books, and you, you get like, uh, hundreds of academic books that say some version of that, you know, like tourism is all about power, whatever. All that suggests is that what we have in many parts of the, um, at least Anglo-American Academy, and I did this also a little bit in French and a little bit in German, and uh, I, I didn't go much beyond that for this particular research project, but people are terminating uh, a lot of their theories in power. And in fact, we have a kind of broad power ontology where you could argue that in many humanistic and social scientific disciplines, in some respects, people think that the only thing out there is power. But they don't tend to have a good theory about that is. It's everywhere and nowhere, and you can't actually characterize it or stipulate it. Yes, there are a few phrases, biopower, uh, you know, techno-scientific uh, power or something like that. But um, in general, power seems to be, uh, um, can be conflated with a whole bunch of a range of quite different phenomena. And part of this is that Basically, a lot of it is a legacy of Foucault, in particular, perhaps Butler's reading of Foucault, uh, although we could debate that exactly, but it's merging these various theories together. So 
Um, part of that is that that theory about power gelled in the uh, in the academy in basically the 1980s and 1990s, and there hasn't been much significant work since then. So all that is to say, we keep turning things to power, but power is often super vague. We we don't know exactly, and in fact, uh, there's no there doesn't seem to be any analytical way that scholars can establish who holds power in a given situation because they can just make accusatory remarks or presumptive remarks about who has power in a particular situation. There should be good analytical ways that you can distinguish those things together. So what would a theory of power look like uh, that 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 didn't do that how could we refresh our theories of power and so um, that's part of so you can tell I've written the section where I set up the problem but I have but I'll say I haven't fully gotten to the section where I solved the problem but here's my intuition okay going forward so the the other thing that's weirdly absent in the anglo-american academy uh, is a theory of causation for the humanities and social sciences this might sound like a separate issue but let me explain to you why this matters um, there was an older notion of deterministic causation that was dominant in physics up through the 1950s uh, that had this kind of clockwork idea uh, of what causation meant and it came from a gradual stripping down of Aristotle's four causes down to, and I'll return to Aristotle in a second, down to a very abbreviated notion of a kind of proximate cause. And then the assumption was that it was, causation was deterministic, it was univocal, and it accorded only uh, alongside uh, scientific laws. Physicists no longer think that's true. Philosophers of science have a totally different theories of power. Uh, uh, um, so, but the humanities rightly rejected that, uh, I'm sorry, different theories of causation. Humanities rightly rejected that theory of deterministic causation, but they don't realize that philosophy of science has have worked out many other interesting and more compatible, more um, ca capricious and more uh, generative notions of causation. And if you go all the way back in our current historical moment, and if you go back to the earliest theorizing of causation, Let's take it. Uh, uh, take it to um, Aristotle, for example, or one of the, some of the earliest theories of causation. Aristotle's notion of idea uh, comes from he's taking a Greek legal term uh, that originally meant responsibility, and he's trying to ask the question: How many different kinds of responsibility? You know, for, for Aristotle, famously, uh, a cause is an answer to a why question: Why did this cup fall down? And then he thinks that there are four different kinds of causes that answer that kind of a question. You know, uh, as um, you know, um, uh, so. And we voided all the other ones out. Okay, but I think the question of cause and the question of power are often actually in the humanities and social sciences the same question. In other words, we often want to know why is something the case that it is now? Who did that? So we want to know, we have a causal story that we want to ask. Uh, why is it, who was responsible for, uh, I don't know, um, the the economic crash of you know 2008 or something that's a question or who is responsible for um or why is it the case that uh, sexual harassment things uh in the uh, american university are so hard to adjudicate or something like that you know so we're asking why questions but we've rejected the largely the idea of causation except for some kind of formal statistical models which aren't that useful and uh we have a overly uh you know for good reasons because they seem to be monocausal and actually in the humanities and social sciences they're often multi-causal but um uh, I think if we if we could find answers to the power questions if we had our causation questions straight, and what we're actually asking for is the same kind of thing. Uh, in other words, a new theory about causation in the humanities and social sciences would also necessarily be a theory about power, and it would suggest 
uh, I, I think that power comes in a multiplicity of forms, that it takes uh, not, not an infinity of them, but a set of demarcatable ones, and that um, it would point us toward, for example, the recognitions like um, not merely hierarchy, but what um, certain sociologists have called heterarchy, which is to say, in the contemporary American academy, um, you know, in, in perhaps some traditional societies, there are univocal hierarchies where one person or one group is clearly the only ones in charge, and that you can rank all the other groups accordingly, you know, on different points in the scale. But in many uh, industrialized societies, there are different kinds of hierarchies that cross-cut each other. So there, those can be hierarchies of race, those can be hierarchies of gender, those can be hierarchies of class. Right now, all we can do is recognize is what we think is that somehow uh, power flows through those and I think that's a good intuition but we think that there's a hierarchy rather than a heterarchy and we need to know how those different kinds of um, uh, uh, systems of power function um, complementary ways basically or in contradictory ways so part of what I'm doing is that and but I'll say that in the middle I got to really worrying about Foucault and his particular theory of power because uh, this a lot of the secondary literature on Foucault uh, doesn't take serious, tries to make him have a univocal account of power that I don't think he, he actually does. And I have a very short little book on Foucault. It's actually not exactly about Foucault, but it's a, a genealogy of genealogy. It's why do we call certain things academic genealogies? What is a genealogy doing? How did Foucault come to that term genealogy? Why does he efface that term's history? Because he actually does. Why did Foucault say he was never a structuralist when he was a structuralist, had been a structuralist, and then genealogy becomes his replacement for structuralism? Anyway, so that, that but an example of showing how uh, genealogy, which was what I was trained to do in graduate school, is a is a, a vicious circle rather than a, uh, a virtuous circle in that a genealogy of genealogy undercuts genealogy rather than demonstrating its value. Anyway, that's going to be a very short monograph. I'm banging it out uh, right now. But and I know I have a lot more thinking to do about power as such. I've got I've written the set up the problem chapters, uh, but but I haven't written the solution. So, uh, you know, that's still a couple of years out, at least. Um, uh, but that's my intuition, is that pa that, that power and causation uh, are asking similar kinds of questions, especially if you look at legal theory, for example. There's a robust debate around causation in legal theory because lawyers often have to adjudicate causes. And so you have to know, you know, if when Smith uh, failed to water the plants uh, and they died, is that a, did he cause the plants to die? Uh, can there be negative causes? Well, actually, in, in the legal circles, there is the beginning of a theory about how negative causes and how they would work. That that stuff is totally missing from other disciplines that are often asking similar kinds of questions. So, you know, so part of it has been reading a lot of stuff in legal and political science, legal theory and political science. Part of it is already the philosophy of science on sort of post-Newtonian physics and notions of cause uh, in philosophy of science. Um, and um, you know, thinkers like Nancy Cartwright, who has a great, interesting theory of causation, etc. Um, so you know, th that's the kind of stuff I'm, I'm kind of limping toward, basically, or, or you know, slowly working my way toward. But I do have a lot of reading still to do. Yeah. Uh, just very quickly, you have the titles for these two books. Like one will be Genealogy of Genealogies, and the yeah. other one. Well, the other one doesn't have a title yet. It, I, I think it was uh, the working title is Power and Powers. Okay. So. Yeah, so it's because I'm kind of playing back and forth with that. Um, yeah, but the genealogy one is a little farther along, and that right now it's being called a, a genealogy of genealogy. Unless somebody else uh, publishes under that title before I get mine done, uh, in which case it'll, it'll have something else in there, and that'll be the subhead. Uh, but, I, but I'm working, but that one's going along pretty quickly. Um, so I, I think, 
you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that it'll be done pretty soon. Yeah, it's gonna be, I promise you I'm gonna actually write a short book. I'm really, I've been really crap about writing short books. What I tend to do is write them twice as long as my publisher will let me publish. And then I often have to like suck them and desiccate them down to this overly dense form that makes them harder to read and means a lot more work for everybody. So I'm, I'm trying to promise myself I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna actually write, I'm gonna write on the underside of what is an acceptable academic book. Then when peer reviewers come in and say, I need to say more about X, Y, or Z, I'll expand it instead of, you know, trimming it like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was hearing about uh, a podcast with you about the times that you were having this group that there were, you were goth punks and there were writers, painters, and you were doing all this kind of, it sounds a bit like a Sandkunstwerks, uh, you know, but... Uh, Yeah. yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, I had a little like a. We we had um, an art manifesto. This is when I was like first year of college, basically, and uh, you know we had like art manifesto, and uh, we were doing paintings and poems and music, and uh, you know really yeah uh, you know uh, we, nobody had told us that the art manifesto was dead or whatever, and and then later uh, we, we heard in our our classes that it was dead and maybe a uh, uh, overly cause an earlier collapse of that, but yeah. Getting back to the possibility that the pandemic might produce certain periodization or many things have changed. I was wondering whether in your book, in the last book, you have described that at the end there is like a kind of therapeutic, therapeutical, philosophical kind of approach and you have this idea of revolutionary happiness. And I was wondering whether it was influenced by the current condition of the pandemic or that was something that you had it, you had thought before the pandemic. And, and if you could explain what it means, this revolutionary happiness. I mean, I like this sentence that is to have a life that is worth living. And that's uh, these days is quite something. Just thinking of mental health issues and things like that. Yeah, thank you. Definitely. Um, yeah, so I mean, fortuitously, uh, in a certain way, for my book, um, that it's coming out, that it came out right after the pandemic. But the academic peer review process is so slow. You know, I wrote it a year before. I wrote it a year or finished it a year before it came out. And so I was doing the very final round of like basically uh, fixing typos uh, during the very beginning of the pandemic. So enough to, you know, I, I rewrote the beginning or I rewrote part of the um, preface and acknowledgements. But otherwise, you know, I, I had it was all pretty much in place before that. But I think, um, um, but I, I hope, or maybe I, I've been people have been responding to it, and I and I think maybe that in part uh, is because of the of the pandemic moment. Um, um, Yeah, so uh, revolutionary happiness. To so take a step back, um, one of the things, two, two of my um, significant interests are critical theory and then uh, virtue ethics. So, um, and this is in a way my attempt to put those two together. So, in terms of critical theory, uh, obviously the uh, Frankfurt School, uh, as we've been talking, has been you know very, very informative uh, and um, an influence on me as well as I also read a lot of critical race and critical gender theory, but. Um, The other thing that's always interested to me is this notion of virtue ethics. And virtue ethics um, is something that is a form of ethical theorizing that was um, uh, we often associate with Aristotle, uh, that, that went basically underground and then had a revival uh, in the British academic world. Uh, and then 
became popularized by people like um, McIntyre, Alistair McIntyre in the um, a larger philosophical academy. Uh, but I also see virtue ethics as having uh, some important antecedents in South Asian and East Asian philosophical thought. So um, they're, they're both sort of Chinese, Japanese, and even Indian uh, versions of uh, kind of virtue ethical formations. And I teach a course here and have taught it for several years on virtue ethics in East Asia. So that's been one of my areas. So, um, but to take a step back, what does it mean to put those two things together? So in the first instance, what critical theory allows us to emphasize are the um, alienating effects of our contemporary historical moment, uh, the forms of suffering, victimization, uh, and, and basically violence that are built into the current status quo uh, of society and that uh, are in, in certain respects um, can be, you know, damaging to not only people, but damaging to their ethical lives, uh, moral lives in, in fundamental and important ways. Um, um, and then on the contrary, what, uh, so critical theory points us to a set of problems, but it often doesn't propose solutions. So in fact, uh, if you read a ton of critical theory, um, you know, most of what it's positive suggestions are, are either anemic or uh, they're more explicit calls for revolution, which I understand, which I want to uh, emphasize, you know, a radical upheaval of the system is great and important and something that we need to do. But often even what's on the other side of that revolution is either an orthodox Marxist model or it's underspecified. So um, what happens with virtue ethics? So virtue ethics uh, is basically what's interesting to me about that as a philosophical or ethical tradition is its emphasis on uh, human flourishing and uh, when that's thickened, when that's not taken to just be some vague thing uh, about like how you should all be happy or whatever, but is taken to in a, in a more robust dimension is exactly what is it? What does it take to live a life worth having lived? And one of the things that drew me to philosophy as an undergraduate uh, was, you know, a Greek philosophy courses, which talked about philosophy as a way of life. Philosophy should teach you how to live a life worth having lived. Now, that's a project that was abandoned uh, in uh, in the Western, in the, most of the history of the West. That was that was given over to the to, to theology, for example. Um, philosophers have done little bits of it along the way, but it wasn't a dominant project. And today, if you look at uh, American philosophy departments, that's they don't want to teach philosophy as a way of life. In fact, they teach it as a kind of mostly logic chopping or something like that. So um, what would it mean to return to philosophy as a way of life? What would it mean to think about what it would take to live a life worth having lived? And that's where there are great thinkers like Aristotle, like Shantideva, uh, like um, Confucius, uh, like the Tao Te Ching uh, as a text, etc., uh, that, that have some notions about what that would look like. And one of the things that, um, so that that life, to live a life worth having lived, uh, is what I want to call our kind of human flourishing, uh, um, or in this case, even multi-species flourishing, is what I want to call happiness with a capital H. And then the, the thing that we have to get from critical theory, though, is the recognition that our contemporary communities, our contemporary uh, uh, economic and cultural systems are not designed to produce flourishing. In fact, they're the opposite, right? They're alienated, they're full of uh, all these attendant negative effects, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're in, enmeshed in these systems of uh, power and domination and capitalist exploitation uh, that, that tend to make us um, uh, feel precarious and uh, precarious on purpose. You know, think of advertising imagery that's focused on making consumers feel bad about themselves so they'll buy the next product. Do you have, don't you have scruffy elbows or whatever, like buy a new scruffy elbow, I don't know if that's a real thing, but buy an elbow <laughs> softener. But you know, like that kind of thing, that's the way advertising often works is by making you feel bad and then pr pr proposing us what thinks of as a solution. Well, you know, that's not the only part of the culture. You know, all these different places, as, as, as I'm sure, you know, as both of you know, and, and I've worked on, and I'm sure many of your listeners also know, uh, contemporary society sucks in a bunch of ways. So what does it mean 
when that we're living in a society where it is very hard to figure out what it would mean to live a life worth having lived. And that means that we have to make revolutionary demands on society. And what that does in that ethical theory section uh, chapter is think about what those would be. What's the argument for living a, a, a fully flourishing life? Um, what should the relationship between, between knowledge and value? What should we be doing as scholars? How could we uh, turn the contemporary enterprise of the uh, academy to, into doing something that actually helps people figure out how to live lives better. Because right now, what we're doing is we're preparing students for a job market that doesn't exist, or we're trying to teach them some anemic notion of critical thinking, which has been so rendered so vacuous as to, you know, not, not do very much. I mean, you know, I, I like the academy uh, in certain respects, uh, but it, it definitely has no sense of grand project. And it's not, uh, I can see why many of my students are, are think of it primarily as a, a pipeline to professional careers. Uh, uh, unfortunately, those careers aren't there. And so then what are we actually doing for them? And so part of this is an attempt to think through all of those things and to uh, emphasize a call to Toward, uh, a new way of conceptualizing our collective endeavor, both as uh, uh, academics, both as non-academics, as artists, as musicians, as uh, creators. Uh, how might we come together um, collectively? And what are the things that we would need to do in order to do that? And one of the things I talk about is compassion and a notion of compassion and a sense of situatedness and interwoven compassion, where we're uh, all part of a, a collective environment, uh, along with not just us, but other sentient beings. Um, but uh, how we might then come to think of our, our work in terms of, you know, building helping ourselves become better people and it's and, and and to push back against one thing that i have uh uh talking to colleagues about this it's not that i have a uh overly optimistic view of human nature on the reverse i think most of most of us are fucked up i mean life is we're all flawed people i mean and in fact i think uh, almost everybody is i mean everybody is flawed in some fundamental way i don't think that there's anybody who doesn't have flaws but precisely it is in our flawedness that we can come together. It's recognizing that we're all suffering in some way or another, and that we all, uh, in certain respects, uh, uh, would uh, like to live lives worth having lived. And those that tension, uh, uh, in, in recognizing that we're suffering and flawed, but we would all like to live lives worth having lived, is part of how we overcome a sense of hubris, achieve a kind of intellectual humility, and can come and enable each other to work together to try and build a better future. And so that's where I end the book with uh, with this turn, uh, perhaps utopian, but but I, I really uh, um, hope we can work on it together. And that's why conversations like this are really lovely and important to me. Uh, just, you know, getting outside also of my little bubble where I'm just talking to, you know, academics in my particular subfield. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would like to ask you about um, yeah this uh, relationship that you uh, describe in, in many of your works uh, between uh, knowledge and value and precisely you mentioned this this sort of um, weird moment in which we have undergrad students that they don't have a job market as it used to be maybe 20 or 30 years ago. So there are question marks, particularly as far as I know in the US regarding the use value of uh, enterprises such as the social sciences and humanities. So I don't know if you have created a connection between this uh, relationship that you mentioned uh, quite often between this knowledge and value and, and yeah, the the sort of extenuation that uh, yeah, university programs, uh, well, 
some people they are trying to convince us that they are facing certain extenuation so yeah, so two, two, two big issues and two fundamental ones, and I'll do them in reverse order. So first I'll talk about university programs, and then I'll go back to the relationship between knowledge and value. So um, in the, you know, so a, a lot of my students, I'll, I'll just uh, pitch it to your to your listeners the, the way I pitch it to my students, although I assume your listeners are, um, you know, more sophisticated or, you know, farther along than my students. But I, when I get students in the classroom, I often ask them, you know, why they're at college. And uh, I have a lecture where, where I do this. And uh, a lot of them say some version of uh, after they get uh, over talking about parental pressure or something or haven't really thought about it, then they say to make money. And then I ask them, well, why do you want to make money? And then they say, sometimes objects you know they want to buy a car or they want to buy a nice house or they want to you know uh you know something new wardrobe or something like that but but then if you ask them well why do you want those things if you push them enough they'll say ultimately that they want to be happy that the thing that motivates them that's the and so and I asked them why they want to be happy. Happy is something that's valuable for its own sake. And now their notion of happy tends to be very anemic. Uh, one of the things that I have to do uh, is try and teach them to recognize that, that happiness doesn't come from new automobiles or whatever, right? It's not euphoria. It's not the happiness of eating, you know, what happiness studies in psychology has often been studying, you know, compares how happy people are after eating a bunch of packet of crisps versus, you know, that's not what I'm talking about exactly. It's not just the passing human emotion. But uh, once uh, we think out a little bit, I think the students tend to grant that what they want to do is to achieve a kind of happiness. And it turns out that you can actually pedagogically help encourage people to 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 live a lot. And, and this happiness they identify with can be taught to identify with having a life worth having lived. They, they think it anyway. You just have to Socratically tease it out in them. So instead of preparing them for the job market, ask them why they want the job market anyway. What is it that they think that they're getting out of it? What is it that they're getting out of their uh, economic enterprises and investments? And you know, it, it's true that part of this is my pushback against a sort of capitalist notion of what what the purpose of the university is, which I think, unfortunately, you know, productivity and is often being rendered in capitalist terms. And there's all this other stuff that's a total mess about the way the university often understands itself, especially in the United States. Uh, but um, I think that something that we can do as educators is uh, encourage them to um, think uh, critically and to, to live a, figure out how to live a life worth having lived. And in a way, this book is a manual about how to do that. It isn't the life having lived part is only at the very end. But I think that one of the set, some of the sets of, in, of things that we're encountering are certain kinds of conceptual categories that we're entangled in. And I think we need the negative moment, uh, uh, the deconstructive moment, and the book starts with that in order to get through them. And that's why I forget which of you asked about the philosophical therapeutics. That's why I imagine this is a first step. I'm, I wrote a pretty high level. I mean, it's not going to be readable by uh, uh, the, the average undergraduate, but, but at least uh, some folk or, or people can read it slowly and read through a few times, but it's meant to be its own kind of philosophical therapeutic, where you go through the deconstructive moment of so-called postmodernism, then you look at a kind of a constructive, you produce a kind of vigilance, and then you can produce uh, a freedom from the concept that allows you to constructively use it uh, in different kinds of ways, and then out the other side toward notions of knowledge, uh, better ways to produce emancipatory knowledge and value. So that gets back to this question about the relationship between knowledge and value. So one of the weird things uh, that took hold, and at least the Anglophone Academy uh, uh, in the, since the um, end of the Cold War, has been this notion that what we should be doing in the uh, humanities and social sciences is promoting something called value neutrality. Uh, and it often appeared alongside an analogous, perhaps uh, also well-motivated uh, attention on cultural relativism or ethical relativism. Both of these have something in them. I don't want to just you know preemptively throw out uh, uh, value neutrality and cultural relativism, but I want to suggest that um, 
in the first case of our neutrality, value neutrality is itself a value. And the other thing is that uh, even the early theorists of value neutrality, for example, um, the German theorist Max Weber, whose notion of Freiheit, uh, Freiheit was one of the early inspirations for that phrase in English, value neutrality, had the idea that there are different ways to achieve value neutrality. One way to do it is you be open and honest about your values. And then, uh, and also the other thing that you might want to do is prevent your values from overriding your research outcomes. So you don't want to like be skewing the evidence just because it fits your politics or something like that. And I think those things are important, right? And you also don't want to be necessarily uh, uh, too close-minded uh, in the academy about what kinds of thinking and diversity of thinking that you have in the academy. Uh, so, you know, we don't, don't boot people out for, for not having the right politics necessarily. So, um, uh, and, and we can talk about cultural relativism, but I'll bracket that for the moment. But I want to say that both of those concepts proliferated in the academy and they convinced people that it was good not to have values. But the irony is we can't actually do research in the human sciences without values. We're, our work is intensely entangled uh, in questions of knowledge and value. And so what happened was we tended to drive values underground. So anything that looked like a positive statement, like, you know, wouldn't it be better if less people were suffering or whatever, people say, oh, you're, you're being a value, get rid of your values. But if you say that person uh, is, um, you know, a fascist or whatever, that then looks like critique. It doesn't look like a value, even though that's an ethically normative judgment as well. And I'm not trying to get rid of scornful value, you know, uh, of that condemnation, but I'm just wondering that that shouldn't be the only thing we're doing. We can't only be criticizing folk. And it turns out that that is an expression of value. So the other thing, so in the, there it turns out to be a fundamental relationship between knowledge and values. It doesn't mean, to be clear, I'm not arguing that all knowledge is just the same as value, nor am I saying, you know, something about how it's all values all the way down. That's not my argument. But rather, I think that there are different ways, more or less legitimate, from moving from back to value in the reverse, or from knowledge to value in the reverse. Let me give you the least controversial. Uh, there are certain things called epistemic values. Epistemic values, uh, you know, as, as philosophers, you know, people quite know this, but people uh, in other parts of the academy don't know this. Uh, epistemic values are values about the coherence of knowledge itself. So the statement, uh, you know, that often people say that the difference between fact and values is that facts are is statements and values are ought statements. Well, if that's the case, epistemic values violate that all the time. Uh, you know, we often talk about, for example, uh, intellectual clarity. We talk about uh, coherence of a theory. We talk about its explanatory utility. These are all values. They're all descriptions of how a theory should be. Uh, even to say this uh, philosophical proof or this mathematical proof is valid. That very statement of valid is itself a normative judgment about the theory in question. So uh, 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 at the very least, it looks like um, in the history of the scientific enterprise, values have been part of it all along. Uh, notions about uh, the communicability uh, exchange of knowledge, uh, uh, notions about reproducibility, at least in theory, those have all been central to, 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 to the growth of even the natural sciences. In the human sciences, the values are even more robustly entangled. And, you know, borrowing from thinkers like Hilary Putnam and Amartya Sen, we can talk about um, the, the, there are thick terms, terms that, uh, that interweave value and fact. For example, the expression tyrant, for example, to say, you know, uh, such and such is a tyrant uh, is a claim that it both is a factual claim. It could be refuted if you say, actually, that person isn't even in charge of that country. They're actually in charge of a different country. But it's also, or, you know, it's a normative claim. It's a judgment. To say somebody's a tyrant is to say something about to delegitimate their political project. So it turns out that facts and values are often interwoven. And then, uh, that, but I don't think that should bother us in the same way that it does because there's been this presumption that because value neutrality is the goal, 
that uh, talking about values is always irrational and irreconcilable. But a point of fact, we have plenty of examples of not only facts that are dependent on values, but values that are dependent on facts. Uh, you know, people have the notion that such is the case because, I don't know, X statement is in the Bible, and then you point it at the Bible and you they can't find that passage. That's a factual claim about the Bible. But also, you know, we can, there's certain areas we can agree to disagree. Uh, we don't always have to have the same values in the academy. I'm not trying to produce uh, a kind of value homogeneity, but just say that our values should be on the table a lot more than they are because we actually do have values. We have these scornful values that we hold up all the time, and we have epistemic values that we hold up all the time. Wouldn't it be uh, good if we uh, could, could put our values on the table? And scholars do this, but they often do it only in the very conclusions of their books. Like, I'm tired of reading 500-page books that are like, I don't know, dry historical work. And then in the last paragraph, the person gives you a clue about what motivated their project, what they were passionate about anyway. But they do it sort of tentatively and so that it won't, you know, get they won't get beaten up if they said it. That sucks, man. We should be able to bring the value. We, we would see, no wonder people think that this work is irrelevant. We're hiding the things that are motivating us. And I don't think sh telling the mo reasons that motivate our work makes them necessarily less empirical or less forms of knowledge. Actually, you know, if somebody tells me up front that they're a Marxist historian and they're writing a Marxist history of the Haitian Revolution, I can know whether, you know, what I can filter their, their writing in a particular way or not. I can, you know, I'll be extra critical about point Y and a little less critical about point Z or whatever. Again, that doesn't mean everything just turns into values all the way down or that everything needs to be overridden by your politics, but it means that we could be upfront with each other and maybe should be more often than we are about what motivates us. And I think then we would actually have more drains to, to, to uh, approach something toward like, um, you know, uh, both we would approach knowledge better and approach value better if we were able to do those two things together. So that's part of what that project is. So to make a case for, for values in certain kinds of ways, legitimating moves uh, for the entanglement of knowledge and values, which is again, not everything goes, but that there are at least a certain set of ways of relationships that knowledge and value can have that won't destroy the utility or we might say value of an academic work. Uh, and so uh, why not do that? And then what are my cards? Why don't I lay my cards on the table? And my cards on the table are revolutionary happiness. Uh, and, you know, at least um, that's one way to express what it is that I'm working toward. And what I think that the book and in fact, my scholarship in general is trying to achieve, uh, trying to help people figure out how to live lives worth having lived. And in particular, I focused on a certain set of concepts that I think have gotten in the way through their reification and uh, that, that them need to be dissolved. And then also in this book for the first time, because my first two books were just deconstructive, in this book, I then try and think about recuperating certain kinds of concepts and how we might do that and, and what utility they might serve once we've done so. Because um, we can't just destroy, uh, uh, then we can't build a better world. And so then we have to think about what, what it looks like to build after, you know, how to construct after deconstruction, perhaps. Uh, and what are the limitations of that enterprise? Uh, and think, then, I th so that's where I kind of go. Yeah. I think this is the time to ask you, what kind of concept of the like, subject do you have? Oh, that's such a broad question. And, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, I, there, there's the there's such a debate about I think that's a, often a difference between the Anglophone and the Francophone Academy. When I'm talking to French colleagues, for example, this debate around the, sub, the subject is, is such a huge thing. I, I imagine in the, uh, 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 the uh, Hispano-Blante world, you know, the Spanish-speaking world, it's a similar thing. Uh, in the American Academy, we've, we've less focused on this. So I don't have a pat answer for that. Uh, because to me, it looks like uh, that it could be talking about, you could be asking uh, 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 
separate questions for me that I'm not sure, uh, you know, what kind of a person am I trying to produce or what are the situated position from which I'm speaking or uh, what are the kinds of um, uh, what kind of phenomenology uh, uh, am I um, describing? Um, and I guess I could answer each of those, but, I would, but they would be they would probably be different answers. Or uh, in certain contexts, I realize it's often a theological question. So uh, I, I didn't notice that, but I was cornered by a, a, a French colleague. Uh, maybe this was about actually not you know maybe a couple months ago who who you know was trying to ask me what my theology of the subject was, and I had to make sure I was understanding you know what he was saying properly, and I was like. I don't think I have a theology, and I don't know why those two words are co-occurring. But but they're, but but I, I think um, I think what he wanted to know really was: Am I a pantheist or not? And I'm going to say I'm open to pantheism, uh, but I'm not fully committed. Uh, so, but but that may be a, a separate question. But but um, was there one of those that that, that that you want me to answer, or has my uh, decomposition of the topic been, been sufficient? Well, you said that you want to construct, and I guess. Yeah. Is, uh, is, there, is there a subject that the revolutionary happiness is applied to? I mean, is there, and then how do you conceive that? Yeah. Like, who is it that, that achieves revolutionary happiness, kind of like Exactly. That? Yeah, I mean, my hope is that um, this notion of revolutionary happiness, one of the other breaks that I make with conventional virtue ethics Uh, and this is, I mean, a roundabout way of explaining it. Conventional virtue ethics uh, is often not very pluralist. In fact, uh, conventional virtue ethics uh, in the Anglophone Academy, not exclusively, but often uh, imagines that there's only one kind of human flourishing that is possible. And I don't believe that that is the case. In fact, I think that there are many different ways to live a life worth having lived. I think many people, and to the extent to which my project uh, is perhaps uh, universalizing in this case, I think if you asked, All, most ordinary people across the globe, regardless of whether they're living in the global north or the global south, they'll talk about wanting to live a life worth having lived. What that will look like, though, I want to suggest, is quite variant. So, uh, and and with two qualifications. In the, in the first case, it's quite variant in that for some people, for example, um, you know, I spent time, for example, in a Buddhist monastery. Uh, there are some people for whom the monastic life is the flourishing life. Uh, to live a life worth having lived would be to be a monk, to be in a situation where you, you know, don't own anything. When you're you're living um, in a monastery environment, you're practicing spiritually every day or or, or meditating every day. But for some people, uh, to uh, live a life worth having lived is to be an you know an artist, to be creating, to be constantly producing vibrant you know music or art or you know cre creative expression. Uh, you know, and um, I don't want to overdetermine that. Aristotle thought that the only life worth living lived was basically to be a, a philosopher or a politician, and he sort of wished those two went together more often. You know, I don't think that that's necessarily the case, although those are uh, lives worth having lived too. Now, to say that, I think it's a pluralistic. So I have a notion of a kind of a pluralistic subject, a, a possible set of subjects. Uh, um, I don't want to overdetermine the reader of my book in part. Uh, we could say this in a, a Derridian kind of sense that the you know there, there will be free play uh, of the text. The text will escape me and, uh, and it will go on to have its own half-life. And I don't want to overdetermine what kind of people will pick up and be inspired by the book. I don't want to uh, pre-imagine them. Um, although it's unfortunately written in English, it's going to be it's actually being translated into Mandarin, so it'll there'll be a, uh, a, a Chinese version. I've been pushing for a Spanish version because actually I've been getting some. Uh, 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 messages from people, uh, uh, I, but I haven't found a Spanish publisher. So if any of you happen to, if either of you happen to come across it, I would love. Uh, that would be the next um, um, group of people I would like to read it. But um, the only other thing that I'll add 
so it, I, I want to produce a film, but I, the, I think that the subject, whatever kind of subject I want to produce, it requires a, a level of self-reflexivity. And I think that we can be deceived about ourselves. Uh, and one of, the th one of the kinds of intellectual humility that I'm committed to is the recognition that not only can I be wrong, but we can all be wrong. And we can be wrong about ourselves. This is a point you can get from Freud. Uh, you can also get it in various ways from Marx. Uh, you can get it uh, uh, from a, a host of less fancy theorists than that. We're just sometimes wrong about ourselves. We're wrong. We can be wrong about the things that make us happy. Uh, we can be wrong about what a flourishing life looks like for us. Uh, but I can also be intellectually wrong about, I don't know, the components of, of my various theoretical formations. And and part of what I'm encouraging is a kind of a compassion toward each other where we recognize our own flawedness, as I was saying earlier there, but also a compassion toward ourselves and a recognition that we need to be humble, both in terms of knowledge and in terms of value. So, uh, and that requires a certain kind of reflexivity. And again, to go back to an old philosophical chestnut, uh, you know, uh, it, it's an encouragement toward uh, the examined life, the self-examined life. Now, to be clear, a lot of people are in dire straits. They're in points uh, uh, of economic desperation where they don't have time to reflect on themselves. And that's part of why more we should work harder to change the system to make it so that people, uh, even uh, across uh, uh, economic and uh, uh, other forms of deprivation, have the time to do certain kinds of self-work, to do kinds of, to practice certain technologies of the self, uh, or self-care, whatever you prefer. I don't like the word self-care exactly, but self-reflection, maybe. Uh, and so, and, and I, and I'm, but I'm, uh, and that's one of the things that I think, uh, in terms of revolutionary happiness, we need to be able to de demand uh, of our communities uh, is that that their their people are not being worked to the bone in certain kinds of ways, so that they can't do that kind of self work. But you know, and I want to encourage self reflexivity. Um, but other than that, I, I hope I have a plural notion of the subject uh, uh, involved here. Uh, I don't know if that's a satisfying answer or not, but I'll I'll, I'll have to end it there and I'll think about it more. Yeah. Because you're now the, the third person to ask me about the subject in different ways. So uh, it's clearly, yeah, anyway, I have to think about that. Uh, and to change a bit the subject, <laughs> have um, the God bands that you were into it, have they influenced you philosophically? Uh, yeah, I mean, and definitely. Uh, um, so, okay, so the band that I was in, Uh, that was none of these were ever signed bands. So the band that I was in that was the most successful um, That was goth uh, was a band called Captain Smiley um, some of the people in it went on to form um, uh, Bands um, Maudlin of the Well and K.O. Dot and they became but they shifted to metal at that point and I was not uh, You know, we, we were a little bit goth metal, but you know, the name Captain Smiley was ironic It was you know, we, we were you know, mopey goth metal kids um, and uh, Toby Driver is a good buddy of mine He's the most successful uh, of the You know, he's on the cover of Heavy Metal Magazine or whatever here. I was in bands with him. But unfortunately, he we, he got big after our band had already split up. So uh, I, I did not get to experience that. But then I was also in a series of punk bands. Uh, the most successful of those um, was uh, an otherwise uh, girl punk group called The Bulimics, spelled with an X, uh, mm -hmm. where I was the only male member. Uh, and we played, uh, uh, if those of you who are listening, we played in the greater um, uh, San Francisco area uh, at a certain moment. And we opened for some bands that got big, but we also never recorded. So, uh, Captain Smiley recorded, but we, we produced our own demo tapes, but we didn't uh, ever get land a record contract. Um, but anyway, um, and then I, you know, did some DJing, and I still do some DJing. Um, but uh, how? Are the, but I still identified uh, as a goth, a punk, and then a goth, and then a punk slash goth. And I still identify as a goth to some extent today. Uh, and I think what? Uh, so one of the things that that um, 
surprises people when they hear about a project of metamodernism is the presumption that it's going to be, um, you know, and I associate it with, you know, that, that it's going to be moving us out of the negative in a certain way. And the, the, but the presumption might be that I'm some kind of like happy cheer booster, you know, perky little, you know, I don't know, like I'm not like throwing flowers in the road and telling everybody that, that everything is wonderful. In fact, out of the contrary, out of the sort of the, the spirit of um, the cathartic value uh, of a kind of goth romanticism. We start from the darkness. You know, you begin with the negative gesture. You don't deny that everybody's suffering. You don't deny that things are all fucked up. You have to start from that as your premise. But that isn't where things end. You know, the goth, goth music is a beautiful attempt to celebrate uh, the dark side of the world. And it produces beautiful art, beautiful music. The same way that punk, uh, you know, celebrates resistance. And I was drawn to punk in part for that too. In both of those uh, aesthetics, and particularly their merger, and I love industrial music, and I also love hip hop for, for similar kinds of reasons. But although I never did uh, hip hop really, um, I wrote some beats, but I uh, never was never going to try and rap. But um, for the best, I'm glad there's no, record, <laughs> there's no recordings of me rapping. But all that is to say, uh, it is often out of the most troubling parts of the world uh, that we can build the most wonderful art and the most powerful philosophy. And so the, the goal is not to deny the dark side of the world, but to do shadow work and out of that shadow work, build something more positive. And so that is the way that, so that we don't just terminate in, in, in moroseness, but can produce, you know, beauty from from that, uh, or, and that it can help our suffering, uh, not to deny it, but to, but to understand it. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so in that respect, it's kind of a goth project. Uh, yeah, even still, maybe. Uh, although I don't assume that any any metamodernistas or people who are into it are into that. Goth is pretty much way past its uh, high watermark, uh, I think. But, you know, I still love it. But. Well, but there is this aspect of negativity that is very present in people like Adorno and in yeah. theory, and as well in, yeah, different aesthetic forms such as, uh, yeah, goth music. But did you, before you were doing your undergraduate studies, I guess you were already part of some sort of goth subculture or punk subculture. So did this yeah. influence your interest in particular readings or something like that? Yeah, definitely. So I was really into punk. I started into punk in high school and punk and goth. I mean, it was all high school. It was, you know, started for me in high school. And, you know, punk is what part of what shifted me to the reading of political theory that I did read. I mean, yeah. now, you know, it was a lot of it was Marx uh, was some was Marx, a lot was anarchist. And I still have a, a strong sympathy for particularly uh, anarcho-socialist theory. I got Uh, super into the Zapatistas for a while and uh, at a moment when everybody was into the Zapatistas. I'm returning that more recently actually and, and finding uh, that there's a lot still there actually. But, um, uh, but, but you know, that was so definitely that, particularly the punk rock scene. The goth scene, I think, um, helped me with an appreciation of a certain kind of uh, literature and a certain kind of aesthetics. Uh, it was less sort of politically formative, but I think, um, um, yeah, And, you know, um, my parents are both philosophers, too, so th there was a, a background interest in, in philosophy already. Um, and my mother, you know, my parents were at one time Marxists, you know, and so, I mean, I grew up in, a, in, a, in, a, in that kind of a background. Uh, so I think the turn to punk was a way for me to find political theory that was neither, you know, my mother's Marxism or my father's, uh, I, I don't know how to frame his, but more, um, you know, uh, traditional left politics or, or whatever. Um, And, uh, 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 but, um, yeah, anyway, so, you know, a lot of, a lot of rebellion, a way for me to rebel. Um, I was also, I also grew up in a Buddhist household. So, um, part of the turn toward punk rock music and goth music was a way to, 
um, break out of, transcend uh, a kind of um, peace and love Buddhism, hippie counterculture stuff. Uh, even though I later returned to a kind of uh, a different form of Buddhism, when I studied Buddhism with a Japanese teacher, um, Isha Fujita, he uh, proposed a kind of, he was a proponent of a kind of Buddhism called Hihan Bukyo, which is critical Buddhism. So it was a kind of Buddhism that was built uh, in the wake of the Second World War and Buddhism's recognition in Japan that Japanese monks had contributed to Japanese nationalism and that Buddhism needed to turn upon itself to recognize what it had done wrong in the buildup of World War II and then uh, rather than denying that, build on it or, or you know, or, or make recompense for it and formulate a new self-critical stance toward things like that. And so, you know, that, that form of my, you know, that is a particular subgroup within a group of Zen Buddhists uh, in, in contemporary Tokyo. Uh, and that was the form of Buddhism, you know, some of the folks that I studied with uh, when I was practicing that, um, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, some of the Japanese monks I studied with. And that, that you know, has returned and I still see myself in certain respects as, you know, a very critical uh, uh, Zen Buddhist. So, you know, the, the rebellion and return and reformulation and rebellion and back in the Metamodernism book, I'm often uh, arguing with my parents in one way or another. So. Uh, <laughs> The, the, whether that's uh, their footnotes to them actually uh their published works in there if you uh it, it can be read there but um anyway long trajectories oh no that's so nice it's very very good to hear all, all this and uh, any you know just to maybe end up uh, your favorite records of this time of like this goth and punk uh, because i guess we also is closer to our hearts to well this mine yeah uh, yeah, so my my favorite group out of that was uh, Sisters of Mercy. I was mm -hmm. super into Sisters of Mercy. Um, I also really uh, loved Joy Division, um, uh, the the Clash, uh, the Misfits, um, the Damned. Uh, those were like uh, you know all uh, uh, really important to me uh, uh, at particular moments. I mean, now I listen to you know. Uh, um, a lot more, you know. I also really like PJ Harvey, uh, uh, Nick Cave, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, um, you know. And since some of the music that I was listening to in my background culture uh, was a lot of country music, and so that, you know, tipped me yeah. toward not that I would listen to, but I would go to, with friends to bars in Ohio or in New Mexico, and it would be country music on. And so uh, most of that I didn't like, but I came to really like Johnny Cash, uh, Waylon Jennings. Uh, and then um, in college, uh, I started listening to a lot of hip hop. And so there's a lot of, you know, Public Enemy, uh, a lot of, you know, uh, and then groups more contemporary like Run the Jewels, uh, The Coop, uh, well, yeah, um, groups like uh, um, Saul Williams uh, and, uh, um, you know, the, the Roots. Uh, I really love The Roots. So, you know, um, and then living abroad, I then started to listen to stuff, you know, from Japan or in France or German, and you know, uh, a little bit from uh, 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 some some Spanish groups. Um, and then I, my radio show, when I had a radio show, I was doing the theme was um, world music with an edge. So I would then pick a different area. I would usually I pick a theme each week. So it'd either be geographic, like it would all be, um, you know, the music of Thailand or something, or I would do. Um, international rockabilly and then i would find examples of rockabilly all over the globe um, and my dj name there's still some of my dj stuff out there but that's under dj jason danger was the, <laughs> my my uh, persona for both my radio show and i would do raves uh i would spin and do parties i did weddings you know little things that you do just you know on the side that was all on the side while i was in graduate school or uh, um or even as a faculty member you know just keeping a little connect. 
Woo! <laughs> <laughs>